Well, good morning, family. Take your Bibles out, if you would, open to the book of First Samuel and to chapter 12 this morning as we continue in our study of the life of this marvelous man of God down into our last few weeks of this, actually, just a, a few more studies to go before we get to uh, Palm Sunday and Resurrection Day, and this will be done just before that. Let's take a word of prayer uh, just for a moment before we dig in. Father, again, I'm so grateful, grateful for your love for us. We celebrated in communion, grateful for the body of Christ and the privilege of gathering together to worship you, ministering to one another and enjoying one another. We need that encouragement. Most of all, we're grateful that we come here to meet with you and that in a very real and very unique way and special way, you show up and meet with us as we gather as your people. So, Father, we ask your great blessing upon this time this morning. May you be honored. And, Father, may you, uh, may you encourage us and equip us and challenge us and feed us this morning, for we are a needy people. May we have ears to listen and hearts that are willing to to do what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it, and God's people said, Amen. Well, last week we were in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we saw that Samuel anointed Israel's first king, King Saul. And Saul then led Israel into battle against the Ammonites, who had invaded Israel and besieged the town of Jabesh-Gilead. And they demolished the Ammonite forces, and that victory, that decisive victory, really, really cemented King Saul's position as king among the people of Israel. But before we dig into chapter 12 this morning, I really have to take us back to the last two verses of chapter 11, because it we didn't get to those verses last week, and they really set the stage for this morning. So follow along as I begin in verse 14 of chapter 11. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Samuel calls for a national assembly in Gilgal, as he says here, to renew the kingdom. Gilgal was a place of significance to the Israelites. It's where the Israelites first camped after they entered the land of Israel. And when you recall, when Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, for the first time, they came to the Jordan River. The Jordan River was at flood stage, and it was absolutely impassable. And recall that God told them to send the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people, and as soon as they stepped their feet into the river, the Bible says the waters of the river stopped flowing. They started piling up a few miles north of this into a great heap, a great mountain. That would have been a sight to see. 
Imagine if you're just a feet short of that and you're fishing and uh, there you are and all of a sudden the water stops flowing and there it starts piling up and it's been an interesting sight. Well, where the people of Israel were, God miraculously dried the ground out very immediately and they just walked across on dry ground. After they crossed, they had the uh, the ark stay there in the middle of the of the river and while they they gathered stones and they built a monument out in the middle of the Jordan to remember this day so that those who came by in generations to come could still see this is where God parted the water and we crossed as a people. I imagine that monument was still there now uh, some 400 years later that they see that there. It was a special place. After they crossed the river, the Bible tells us that God said, by the way, now that you're here and on this side of the river, it's time to consecrate yourselves to me. And uh, one of the things that had been neglected during the last 40 years as they were in the wilderness was they had not circumcised any of the males. And God said, it's time to circumcise this generation. And so they did that. And then after that, they celebrated. It was exactly one year. It was the time of the Passover, and they celebrated the Passover there, their first Passover in the land of Canaan. And there uh, as well, now in the promised land, and as they eat of the produce of the land, the manna stops. All of these things happened here at Gilgal. It was a significant place in their history, just about a mile and a half north of Jericho. So the assembly here is partially to coronate Saul as king. Now, if you were here last week, we know that Saul was already chosen to be king, and maybe you thought he was coronated then over at a place called Mizpah, but that's up in the high country there in Israel. But what would happen there, he was chosen as king. He was, uh, we might say in a way, inaugurated as king. He became king, but they didn't have the grand festivities, the big ceremonies. And that's what they did here. That was part of the reason for their gathering here in Gilgal. But Samuel says, he didn't say come to Gilgal and let's coronate Saul as king. What he said was, let's, we're going to go there and renew the kingdom. An interesting phrase when Saul is a brand new king. Well, partly it may have been because recall back at his initial choosing, there were some of the worthless men who said, uh, we don't think he should be king. And maybe this is to, to now everybody's together. And we've all agreed after that the battle with the Ammonites that Saul is bona fide uh, qualified and whatever fide he would be to be king. Maybe that's it, but I think he's aiming for something more, as we'll see in a moment. Samuel, I think, is aiming here to renew the nation spiritually. It was now some 20, 25 years earlier, if you've been with us in the study, a few chapters back, when the prophet Samuel called the people to meet at Mizpah, that red dot over to the west. There he called them because the people finally had gotten, gotten tired of Philistine oppression and they were, they were finally uh, ready to do something. They were longing to hear from God again. And Samuel called them together and led them in a great revival. They got rid of all of their other idols and they came to worship God alone. And then you recall that God miraculously delivered them from the Philistines. 
And now for 20, 25 years, it's been some period of time here, they have had peace in the land. But now once again, there is a need for spiritual renewal. Over this, these last couple of decades, the people have begun to wander from God a bit. But before Samuel calls them to a renewal and revival, he does something very unusual. Follow along again as I read now, starting in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you've said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Or whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify me against, testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. What Samuel does here that is intriguing and most unusual is Samuel in now as they're about to coronate Saul as king, we could call this his very last day as judge, as leader of Israel. As judge, Samuel puts himself on trial. He says, look, I've done what you've asked. You wanted a new leader and now he stands here. You fired me, I'm gone. And now I'm putting myself here on trial. You recall that when they basically gave him the pink slip a few chapters back, they said, your sons, who he had put down in the southern part of Israel to be to help out with the judging responsibilities, they said to him, by the way, your sons are corrupt. And now Samuel says this, my sons, whom you didn't want ruling, notice he says, they are among you. That's not just saying they're here, it's significant. What it's saying is they're not up on the platform with me. They're not over here in the government now with Saul. They are among you as the people. What he's saying is you informed me that they were not acting justly. They were corrupt and they've been fired. I have removed them from office, from power. I demoted them. And now Samuel says, look, I have walked before you, meaning that not only has he been on full display in front of the people, but also meaning that I have served you since I was a boy, since his parents dropped him off at the temple to serve God, to be devoted to God all the days of his life. And Samuel says, so I have been serving you since I was a boy. And now that I am closing this chapter of my life as judge, I'm calling court into session. 
And I'm asking some questions in front of God who is witnessing and in front of the new king whom you might notice he calls twice here his or God's anointed. Samuel is making very clear he is not begrudgingly turning this over to Saul. He's making it very clear Saul is here because God has anointed him and he is the king making very clear that here's a transition of power and he's not bucking the system here. But he says, before God and before the king, tell me, have I taken anything from you? Have I appropriated anything? Have I extorted anything from anybody? Speak up if I have. He says, have I defrauded anyone? Have I cheated anyone? Have I been dishonest with anyone? If so, speak up. He says, have I oppressed anyone? Have I abused my authority? Have I harassed anyone, bullied anyone? If so, speak up. He says, have I taken a bribe? Have I been corrupted? Have I been unjust? In any of my dealings, if so, speak up. Speak up now, he says, and I will make it right. Have you ever, ever heard a proposition like this from any governing official? I haven't. And I doubt we ever will. Incredibly unusual, incredibly rare, if it's ever happened before. What's even more unusual is he throws it out there with these questions. Not one person says, that's why, by the way, governing officials don't do that. There would be many hands go up, many accusations. What this says about this man's character is astounding. This is a man of great character, a man of impeccable character. That the people, instead of even, instead of anyone objecting and saying, yeah, instead of anyone raising a problem, the people affirm, yes, you have taken nothing from our hands. Yes, you have been just. Yes, you have done right. Wow. We could use some leaders like that, couldn't we? Hmm. What's amazing, they had one and they fired him. I just find that incredible. Samuel finished well. For over 20 years, he has led as a judge, he has led the nation as their highest authority human authority, and he has done well. But why does he do this? Why make a spectacle of this, we might question. Is Samuel just feeding his ego? Is he wanting to correct the record because when they fired him, you know, there may have been some little, well, you know, by the way, your sons are corrupt, and by the way, you're old and maybe feeble, and and by the way, you're, you know, and 
is he just trying to set the record straight so that when the, the things are written down and filed away in his presidential library, you know, in, in Rama, uh, that his, his reputation is protected? Is that what he's doing here? Obviously, we would say not. But why is he doing this? Well, he's ending his political, his civil career, but what Samuel understands is he is still on duty in the other roles that God has given him to do. From the time that he was a boy, he was put into the temple and he was given the charge of serving along with the priests. And he has taken on a role of priest among the people, their representative before God. As a young man, God spoke to him and called to him and God he God began speaking to him and through him and Samuel became known, we learn, from Dan to Beersheba, north, north to south, all through the land as a prophet of God. Samuel is no longer going to be judge, but he is still priest and he is still prophet. And there's still he is still needed among the people, though they don't know that yet, in these roles. And Samuel wants them to understand that his, his tenure as a governmental leader has in no way tarnished, in no way diminished or impedes his credibility to serve as priest and to serve as prophet. Samuel, you see, is deeply concerned for these people. One of the things I noticed as I read this passage, I was intrigued by the the passion and the concern that he has for these people. As I began to re- as I read through this, the more I realized the tone he speaks, I think is that rather as a grandfather, now as an old man, he speaks very tenderly to these people. He's going to talk to them, we'll see about sin, but he does it very tenderly. Samuel is concerned for these people, and Samuel wants them to finish their lives well too. He's finishing his well. But he wants them to finish their lives well. But there's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And so the next thing that Samuel does here is he puts Israel on trial. The judge has now conducted court about his own conduct and now he puts the nation on the, on the hot seat. Verse 7 of uh, chapter 12. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and all the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. Samuel starts here a little bit of historical review. A little review of the history of the Israelites. And basically he's answering the question, how did our ancestors, how did our forefathers get out of Egypt, out of slavery, and get here? We said, you'll recall that what happened is when our our ancestors were being oppressed when they were being slaves, they cried out to God. They said, God, help us. God, deliver us. And then 
He delivered them from Egypt and delivered them to the promised land to live here. The land that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, verse 9, he says, Our our ancestors, our forefathers made it here to this land. They settled in the land. But look at verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold him into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Samuel is summarizing the last 400 years of history. He says, you came into this land, but you weren't here very long. Right after Joshua died, you forgot God. Matter of fact, not only did our ancestors forget God once, they repeatedly forgot God. They forgot God, wandered away from Him, began worshiping other gods. And he says every time they forgot God and began worshiping other gods, God would sell them into the hands of one of their neighbors, one of their enemies, and they would oppress them for a time. It happened actually, when you go back and look, 13 times in the book of Judges. He only names three of the people who oppressed them, three of the armies, three of the kings, but it happened as I say, 13 different times. It's a quick summary. Then what happened? So the ancestors repeatedly forgot God. Their enemies oppressed them. There was misery. Then verse 10, And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forgotten the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. They cry out to God. And then verse 11, And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. Every time that our ancestors cried out to God and said, God, deliver us, save us, God raised up one of the judges. He named four of them. There were more. Again, this happened 13 times. God raised up a judge who would go and through the judge, God delivered you from your enemies and you lived in peace and safety until you forgot God again. And then it happened again, 13 cycles over a 400 year period. And you'll notice the last of the judges he names is Samuel himself. He just brought it up to the present day. So folks, that's the last 400 plus years of our history. Have you learned anything from history? Have you noticed a pattern here? We cry out to God and He delivers us. We forget God. We get in trouble. We forget God. Things go badly. We cry out to God. He delivers us. We forget God. Things go badly. We cry out to God. He delivers us. It's a pattern. You know the old... Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, we see this repetition again and again and again. Verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen. Here he is. For whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God 
it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice, obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Samuel moves from their historical review to their current situation. And here we get a little more insight, a little more backstory to what was going on when a few chapters back they asked for a king. You remember when they came to Samuel, they said, you're old, your sons are corrupt, and uh, we want a king to lead us into battle. What we find out now, there's a little more to the story. You see, for the last 20 plus years, they've lived in peace and safety with all their enemies, as we saw the, it It told us earlier about Samuel and his time leading as judge. But those who were astute, those who were keeping up reading their little clay tablets, you know, keeping up with the news feeds coming along, they're keeping, they're, they're noticing that over to the east in the land of Ammon, there's a king rising by the name of Nahash. And Nahash is becoming powerful and he is becoming threatening, and he is going to be a big problem for Israel. And they probably are looking at Samuel and saying, he doesn't seem to be very concerned about this. What we need here is a change of leadership. And they come to Samuel with a proposition. Samuel, we think you're done. Here's your pink slip. We want a king. You see, Samuel says... The reason you wanted the king is because of Nahash and the Ammonites. That's why the history lesson. Every time you've been delivered over the last over 400 years, who has done it? God. But your solution is fire God's man, the judge, and let's get a king. Because that's what every other nation does. Samuel says, that's a bad move. For many reasons, one of them is, you already had a king, he said. The Lord was your king. But you handed him a pink slip when you handed me a pink slip. You said, we want a human king. Wow. Now, before we point a bunch of fingers at the Israelites here and say, those those fools, idiots, realize that we do that. Every time we deliberately sin, every time we know God wants us to do that, but we go do this, every time we choose our preferences over God's Word, every time we choose our desires over God's desires, we basically try to hand God a pink slip and say, thank you, God, I know you are king, but I really don't want you to be mine. Right? Isn't that what we do? Exactly what Israel has done here. But Samuel then goes on to say something very significant. He's saying, now you've got your king... And you've got the deliverance you wanted from the Ammonites. You got your deliverance. But don't be fooled. Not for a second. Don't think that that happened because you have a king. It happened because of the grace of God. See, notice the second half of verse 13. What he says is, he says, 
before you, behold, the king whom you've chosen, whom you have, for whom you have asked. Behold, what's that next phrase? The Lord has set a king over you. You see, newsflash. You can hand God a pink slip. You can fire God all you want from being king, but guess what? He's not fired. You can say, God, I don't want you to be my king, but guess what? He still is king. And the little subtlety here of that is, you asked for a king, you wanted your own king, you got him, but how did you get him? God put him there. So who's in charge? God. So don't for a second think that your king can save you from anything. Don't think for a second that your king can give you safety or prosperity or peace. He can't do it. By the way, what does that say about politics? Truth is the same. Don't forget who's still in charge. God is. And he says, remembering that truth, the rules have not changed. The covenant that they are living under with God, the contract, the agreement, the Mosaic covenant is still the same. God is still their king. We talked about that last week. And God said to the nation of Israel, if you follow me, things will go well. If you don't follow me, things won't go well. If you don't follow me long enough, I'm going to kick you out of the land. And he did. He brought them back. Kicked him out again. Someday I think he's bringing them back. Because God always keeps his promises. But that's a whole other sermon. I'm not going there. God is still in charge. Follow him. Things will go well. Neglect him. Disobey him. Rebel against him. Things will not go well. And if you're there as an Israelite and you're hearing all this, you might wonder, really? Was asking for a king such a really big deal? Or maybe you've been thinking, you know, why is God so ticked they just asked for a king? Maybe, is this just Samuel blowing smoke because he's upset because he lost his job? Just in case there's any confusion, verse 16. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Samuel, see, it says it's, it's wheat harvest. It's wheat harvest, and wheat harvest is in Israel is late June, early July. And that time of the year, I have never been there that time of the year, but from what I read, what I hear, is skies are basically always clear blue. There is no rain. It doesn't rain then. Or at least it almost, almost never, ever happens. It's so rare that when Samuel here prays, and says, God, send a storm if you are ticked at their sin. If they have sinned, send a storm. 
Rare, it's that rare. Nobody can say it's coincidence. It's not. He prays and the rain comes. It flashes flames of, what was that in the, we read in Psalm 29? <laughs> flashes flames of furious fire or something. It dramatically, the storms dramatically come. And there's no question. People go, God has spoken. We have sinned greatly. We are guilty. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. The people as the rain and the thunder and the lightning shake the ground. The people are panicked. And they, they say, oh, oh no, we're in trouble. God was our king and we handed him a pink slip. And we handed Samuel a pink slip. And he's the one who goes and talks to God for us. We're in trouble. Hey, Samuel, by the way, when we told you to retire, would you consider coming back and praying for us? Hmm. They offended God. We're guilty. I wonder, have you ever messed up? Messed up so deeply? You think I have blown it so bad? I have sinned so greatly? There is no way I can go back. No way God will have me. I'm toast. That's what the Israelites are afraid of here. They say, Samuel, please pray. We don't want to die. Verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Verse 20 has the most interesting words. Do not be afraid, for you have done all this evil. He says, bad news. You, you committed all this evil. All of it. You are guilty. Really guilty before God. You tried to fire God. Shouldn't it read, be afraid? Be very afraid. Shouldn't that be what... But no, he says, don't be afraid. You've committed this evil. See, he's pointing out two very important truths. The first is that God is a holy God. God will judge sin. And so it's bad news that you've committed evil. There's bad news here, but there's also good news. Don't be afraid because there is hope. There is hope. If you, verse 20, if you turn to God instead of turning away from God, turn to God, follow Him. Why is that 
good because God is gracious. Look at verse 22. He won't forsake his people who call upon him. That's good news. You see, the focus of this whole passage, it is somewhat focused on the sin of these people. That is a focus of this text. But there is a bigger, greater focus in this text. And that is the grace, the mercy, the goodness, the faithfulness of God. Look back with me at verse 7. We read it a few moments ago. It says, Now therefore, and stand still. This is where he's called the people now. He's calling the meeting to order after he has done his trial. Now he calls to start their trial. He says, Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all your sins. No, that's not what it says, is it? That I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and your fathers. What's the focus? God's goodness, God's mercy, despite your sin. You see, Samuel is hoping the people will get the picture here. Perhaps the strongest motivator for you and me to faithfully follow God is His goodness. It's like the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Romans chapter 1. So he says, do you not know that the kindness of the Lord leads to repentance? Yes, God will judge sin. But God is merciful to those who call upon Him. That should drive us to Him. And His goodness to us. And He pours blessing upon blessing upon blessing on us. That should cause us to say, yes, Lord. I don't ever want to wander away. Lord, help me to stay faithful. It should cause us to keep our eyes on Him. That's why as he wraps up his down in verse 34, he says this, Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Why? For consider what great things He has done for you. So Samuel does point out their sin to these people, but he calls them back to say, Come to the Lord because God is gracious. Come back. And follow Him with all your heart. I plead with you. Samuel has one more thing that he says. Verse 3. A marvelous verse. Verse 23. Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Samuel makes a commitment to the people. He has heard their fears. He understands their fears. And Samuel says, I want to make an assurance to you. My dear people. He says, I am stepping aside as judge. And Saul is taking over as king. But I will still be faithful. I will still be faithful to pray for you. I will continue to finish well 
by praying for you all the days of my life. For me to not do that is sin. And he says, I will keep teaching you God's word. I will teach you the good and right way. These two priorities, by the way, that he sets out here for the rest of his life should be the priorities of every godly leader. Whether you are a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, a Bible study leader, a mom or a dad, if you're a leader, the most important things you can do for those you lead is pray for them and share God's Word with them. It's what the apostles made their priority, Acts chapter 6, where they are getting distracted by some other things and they create deacons to, to help take care of some matters so that, it, they say, so that we can devote ourselves to the preaching of the Word and prayer. By the way, just to be honest, these words are so convicting to me. It was this week. I've long known this verse and been a favorite and yet as I read it again I'm like oh Lord I fall so far short and confessing to you there are so many times I have failed to pray as I ought for you by God's grace I will start following better in Samuel's footsteps and may we all Samuel had committed himself here to set the pace to be an example of a godly man a servant to God and a servant to the people with his whole heart. And I think he is in the top one, two, three men mentioned in all the Scripture in his faithfulness in doing these things. What an example he set. The question is now, will Israel follow in his footsteps and serve God wholeheartedly? And then for you and me, will we? Will we do that? As I finish this morning, I just have to ask, when Samuel was speaking to the people, he made this statement, and I said it earlier, and it's important, it's a comforting one, where it says, the Lord will not forsake His people. But it's only a comforting one if you are His people. Everything that's been said here has been said for God's people. How do you know if you are one of God's people? It's a great question. The Bible answers that question clearly. We celebrated communion a few moments ago. God became man, Jesus Christ. He came to die as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. Speaking of Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 12, says this. It says, to all who received Him, Jesus, who believed on His name, He, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. How do you become a child of God? Believe, trust in Jesus as the one who came and paid for your sin. Trust Him as your Savior. It's a matter of faith that simple it wasn't simple for Jesus but he's made it 
Well, all you have to do is receive Him, trust Him by faith. We have God's Word on it. The one who comes to Him, He will not turn away. Many of us here, we've trusted in Christ long ago. We're believers in Him. We are part of God's family, part of His children. The bulk of this message was spoken to us. I can't help but imagine that there are some of us in this room and some of us watching online and some of us watching down in the fellowship hall. There are some of us who find ourselves where the people of Israel were at this time. Some of them had turned away from God and begun to follow perhaps other gods. Some of them had perhaps been sitting on the fence wavering in their Are they going to follow God or not? Many of them were the ones who gave God the pink slip and said, Thank you, God, we want our own king. Maybe some of you have been there. or Maybe you've been following God faithfully and it's been hard and you're tired and you're discouraged. This morning you need to remember the goodness and the faithfulness and the grace of God. Or if you're one who needs to come back in some way, remember the goodness and the faithfulness and the grace of God and return to Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, what an important message, something we need to hear. I dare say there's not a one of us in this room who has not at some point in time been like the people of Israel here. We've tried to hand you the pink slip. Lord, If that's any of us now, may we right now deal with our own sin, confess it before you. Repent, turn, change directions, follow you with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength. And again, Father, if there's one listening this morning or here this morning who has not put their trust in Jesus, may they even in these moments say yes. I believe. I trust you, Jesus. I receive you as my Savior. And we rejoice that in that very moment, your word says, they become a child of God. They're passed from darkness into light. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Again, may we be those who are not just hearers only, but are doers. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.